Oh, I know now what's keeping me awake. Two hours ago, I didn't. The Outline, World Dispatch. Wednesday, June 7th, 2017. I'm Adrienne Jeffries. Today on The Dispatch. Rawia Kamir on why Hollywood made the same movie twice. Sure enough, it would appear that Hollywood did make two very similar movies. William Turton on how not to leak classified documents. Reality really didn't do a whole lot to protect herself here. And I look at some frustrating aspects of the New York Times crossword puzzle. The general quality of the puzzle seems down and also seems not to be keeping pace with the time. Here's the dispatch. Culture. A few weeks ago, while browsing YouTube, I began seeing ads for a movie about a wild weekend away with the girls called Girls Trip. I'm about to get pregnant tonight! For whatever reason, Google's ad-serving algorithm thought this was a movie I might like. Not long after, while watching something with my roommate on her YouTube account, a trailer for another movie called Rough Night popped up. The Wallace Fifth Floor girls are back together again! <laughs> Did you know they're making the same movie twice this summer, she asked? We watched both trailers back to back, and sure enough, it would appear that Hollywood did make two very similar movies, with some slight differences. We haven't hung in five years. This weekend is about us. This weekend's all about us, just like old times. One takes place in Miami and the other in New Orleans. There's gonna be so many hot Miami babes. One is about a group of girlfriends who met in college, and the other is about a group of girlfriends who met much earlier in life. I miss you guys. We need a girl's trip. One deals with the death of a stripper, and the other with the death of a marriage. I killed a guy! But aside from those sorts of plot differences, Rough Night and Girl's Trip do seem remarkably similar to each other. Straight up, you're going to get at least two dicks this weekend. We're going to be swimming in dick, girl. Except for one significant detail. One is white and the other is black. Ooh, that's that Shaka Zulu right there. If it feels unfairly reductive to categorize movies as white or black, that's because it is. The color line in Hollywood has been dissected and discussed for years, as has the idea that white audiences aren't interested in attending movies they perceive as being black. There are recent examples that suggest the contrary, or that are at the very least notable exceptions. Moonlight, Hidden Figures, and Get Out, all movies with black leads and black casts, were critical and commercial smashes over the past year. And there are not-so-recent examples, too. Films starring Will Smith, or Denzel Washington, or Eddie Murphy resonated with national and international audiences for decades. Conversations about race and representation in film and television have broadened, but an undeniable divide persists, as it does elsewhere in American life. Okay, someone tell me what to do, and I will do it. Rough Night and Girl's Trip feel like cheap proof of that cultural segregation and evidence that Hollywood has run out of ideas. Girl, you can't get no infection in your booty hoe. It's a booty hoe. It's the future. A contractor for the National Security Agency was arrested for leaking documents to The Intercept. William Turton looked at how she got caught. Hey, William. Hey, how you doing? So The Intercept published this big story on Monday. Let's talk first about what their story was actually about. Was it a good scoop? Yeah, it was a great scoop. So The Intercept got an NSA analysis that was very recent. And this NSA analysis kind of definitively concluded that the GRU, the Russian intelligence agency, had hacked American businesses that create voting technology that has to deal with voting tabulation. 
Um, they cautioned in the story that, you know, this is one analysis and not definitively conclusive, but it was really interesting to see an NSA analysis that kind of explicitly said, we know the Russians are doing this. But that story was overshadowed by another story. Right. So an hour after The Intercept published their big scoop, the Department of Justice put out a statement about arresting someone called Reality Winner. And it turns out Reality Winner is the 25-year-old NSA contractor who allegedly supplied this top-secret NSA analysis to The Intercept. Is her real name Reality Winner? Right. A lot of people were confused yesterday, could not believe that her name was really Reality Winner, but it is, in fact, Reality Winner. On one of the Twitter accounts we found that appears to be her, she was going by Sarah Winner, but her Facebook was Reality Winner. Did she take any precautions to protect herself from being found out? So you might think that someone who has worked for the Air Force before, has a top-secret clearance uh, doing contracting work for the NSA, would kind of know the really intense and sophisticated methods that the intelligence community will go to to find leakers, to track leakers. And reality really didn't do a whole lot to protect herself here. I think what appears to be from the indictment released by the DOJ is that she printed the document at work. Um, And now, you know, the NSA can track who printed what and when, and only six other people printed this document. So the NSA was able to determine, or, or, you know, maybe an investigative group within the NSA was able to determine, hey, six people printed this, so let's search all of those six people's computers. And reality is the only one that had emailed The Intercept before. Now, she didn't email anything about this story. One of her emails was requesting a transcript of a podcast, and another email was an automated email from The Intercept. It was probably a confirmation of a subscription to a newsletter. So she was a fan of The Intercept, basically, is what they figured out. Right. And, and you know, that kind of tracks with her Twitter and Facebook account. You know, she retweeted Edward Snowden pretty often, the other famous NSA whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, The Intercept goes to the NSA with this document and says, you know, here we have this document. Is it real? Do we need to make any redactions for, you know, national security purposes, Mm -hmm. sources and methods, that kind of thing? And so by going to the NSA with this document and then knowing that reality had been one of six people to print it and also emailed The Intercept, it got pretty easy for them to figure out it was her. Were there other clues as to where this document had come from? You know, we should keep in mind that the FBI in these affidavits and arrest warrants are making a lot of unsubstantiated allegations. But what they're saying is that one of the things that helped them determine that the document was even printed in the first place is that when they received the document, apparently they received a scanned version of it that had crease marks uh, as if it had been printed and folded, which led them to the conclusion that, hey, this document might have been printed and then, you know, might have pushed them to check that very printer where, as I said, six people had printed the document. There's another thing not mentioned in any of the affidavits, but a lot of printers have these things called microdots, which is basically kind of a signature that's added to each piece of paper that's printed. And it's added by these small, barely visible yellow dots in the corner. And these dots kind of correspond in a grid and can tell you when the document was printed, what time, and the serial number of the printer. 
So if they got this very document sent to them from the intercept and they were able to analyze those microdots, they could have figured out what time it was printed and from what printer. Was there something that the intercept did wrong here? Did it screw up and screw over its source? If we're taking this affidavit at face value, then yeah, the intercept didn't do everything exactly correct. Now, can we say that if the intercept did everything perfectly, the source wouldn't have been caught? Uh, that's more difficult to say. You know, she emailed the intercept and printed the document at work. But what the intercept should have done when they contacted the NSA is not included the original document they, that they were sent, and they should have retyped the document. Great. Thank you, William. Thanks so much. Culture. The New York Times crossword puzzle is an institution. It's also very old, very white, and very male. Only 13% of constructors so far in 2017 have been women, for example. This tendency is reflected in the clues which are often cringeworthy and alienating for anyone who isn't an old white man. I talked to Michael Sharp, who writes a popular blog called Rex Parker Does the New York Times Crossword Puzzle, about how the Times crossword is stuck in the past. So as a New York Times crossword puzzle watcher, what would you say is kind of the state of the puzzle these days? Okay, so it's, it's more popular than ever, probably. And certainly where the, the digital platforms are concerned, they seem to be doing great business. On that end, it seems like it's booming. Um, from uh, the perspective of someone who's done the puzzle uh, for a quarter century and really done the puzzle and thought about it every day for almost 11 years, it seems increasingly clear that the talent pool is um, either drying up or moving elsewhere. And the talent pool, I mean the people who make the puzzles. Um, so that the general quality of the puzzle seems down um, and also seems not to be keeping pace with the times. Now, crossword puzzles have always been kind of living in the past. That's, that's, that's always been, to some extent, the reputation. And it's always been somewhat true because there's just a lot more information about the past than there is about right now. And you can expect people to know things about the past in a way you can't expect them to know necessarily things that happened yesterday. But generally, that cultural center of gravity moves, has, you know, moves some, um, and it seems to be moving less lately. The constructors remain largely older, male, white, um, and that tends to be the frame of reference of the puzzle for the most part. Can you think of any examples of the kind of things that come up that, that suggest that that cultural center hasn't updated in a while? You know, even a name like Peter, right? If you clue that, you can clue there are a ton of Peters in the world. So the question is, is it a Peter who's living now and doing things now? Or is it, you know, Peter Arno, who was an important cartoonist, but a while back? Or is it Peter uh, the Pope? I mean, uh, Peter, like in the past, like how it really does matter. It can be an ordinary word, right? It just matters like how you look at it and how you want to frame it. So I also have some moments when I'm doing the puzzle where I cringe a little bit and feel like it's, it is almost offensive. Like one that shows up a lot and is annoying is sissies. Oh, yeah. Afro and do-rag are so common, and the way those are clued is always a little bit like, ugh. Well, the reason it's uh, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I'll tell you why those are uh for me. Because uh -huh. a do-rag is a thing and an afro is a thing. You know, they're not, they're, they're actual things in the world, right? But uh, often the clues feel like they, they're 
they're written by someone for whom these things are weird or exotic. Um, and so there's this kind of tone to it that presumes a, a white audience looking at an exotic black person's head gear mm -hmm. or hairdo, um, which just reinforces the feeling that the puzzle is really, it's, it's, it's expected audience as a white audience. And I think particularly when you don't have a grid loaded with answers that have a specifically black frame of reference, you don't clue your stuff in a way that's really takes care to be uh, that inclusive or thinks about issues of inclusivity that much, then when that's true, uh, every time Afro comes up, every time Do-Rag comes up, it just feels like, oh, here's your one moment where you include black people. I mean, especially when it comes to, I don't know, black speech or black speech patterns or mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, black features of um, black people are homey, right? Like oh, jargon. Yeah, homey. And it really, it rings untrue because the whole... You can feel that it's just this like exotic moment for the the the, mm -hmm. the, the time, um, and in a way where actually that stuff's not ex it's not it's totally ordinary to huge chunks of people. So um, there's there's if and again if the puzzle were more generally inclusive of um, a, a non I don't know mm -hmm. a non-white male perspective, um, then I don't think those things would be as as jarring. But again, it's all about context and the context uh, is pretty exclusionary and that's why this stuff kind of grates, I think. At least it grates on, on me a, a little bit. Well, thank you so much. You are welcome. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Stay cool, world. 